That's what I wanted to hear. <laughs> Sounds like I hit the right answer. Yes, <laughs> yes. Um, you'll, this was totally worth it to you. We'll be very excited. Um, right, it's very high quality stuff. All right, here we go. Anyway, let, we'll get started. Teach me about the Great Lakes. Teach me about the Great Lakes. Welcome back to Teach Me About the Great Lakes, a twice monthly podcast in which I, a Great Lakes novice, ask people who are smarter and harder working than I am to teach me all about the Great Lakes. And my name is Stuart Carlton. I work with Illinois Indiana Sea Grant, and I know a lot about exactly where I fit in the grand scheme of things. But I don't know <laughs> a lot about the Great Lakes. That's the point of this year's show. Wait, I heard that laugh. Did you hear that laugh? That was Megan Gunn's laugh. Megan Gunn, how are you? I'm good, Stuart. I'm coming back from break, all rested and ready and recharged and just excited about what this new year is going to bring. That's right. Me too. Happy New Year to you, Megan, and Happy New Year to all you great listeners out there. Uh, yeah, I also had a wonderful New Year, um, which I know because it has already happened, of course. <laughs> Maybe should have gone to bed a little early on New Year's Eve. Oh, who am I kidding? Are you, are you a midnight person on New Year's Eve? I'm I am. I try. Really? Yeah, it doesn't always work out, but I do I try. Yeah, I can't think of the last time I I, I uh, stayed up for New Year's. I was at a family event. That's what it was. This was probably 15 years ago. Um, and uh, I, we lived in Gulfport, Florida, which is on the south side of St. Pete. And you you can cross over this big bridge into the Sarasota area called the Sunshine Skyway. And so we were at a, uh, some sort of a family event, and then um, for family event related reasons, it became critical that we leave the family event. <laughs> so. We took off and we're driving right over this huge uh, sunshine skyway as the fireworks everywhere were going off. And wow. so they were happening like to the side of us. And, and that was the last time I saw New Year's Eve fireworks. So, uh, I mean, if that's your good. last memory of a New Year's Eve fireworks, that's a yeah. fantastic memory to have. It is. It is. It is. Well, <laughs> other than we, we had to leave suddenly thing. Um, yes. Not for health-based <laughs> reasons, for family. You know, you know the deal. We yes, know. I know. Anyway, we've gotten, you know, it's the new year. Uh, everything is fresh. It's uh, so it, it, we're just going to meander our way around. But that's not why we're here, is it, Megan? No. No, it's never why we're here. It's Other never than why we're here. <laughs> no. We're always here to interview somebody, including today. And we've got a really cool interview lined up. But the best news is, of course, we're interviewing a researcher, which you know what time it is. Researcher feature, a feature in which a researcher gonna teach us about the Great Lakes. First time of the year, our guest today is Dr. Mike Schreiberg. Mike is a professor of practice and engagement at the School for Environment and Sustainability at the University of Michigan. He's also the director of engagement for the Cooperative Institute for Great Lakes Research, which you may know as Sigler, and uh, for Michigan Sea Grant, which you may know as Michigan Sea Grant. He's <laughs> also the author of, a, I guess you may know it as the Michigan Sea Grant College Program, but you probably don't. And he's also an author of a, this interesting new uh, kind of think piece, or the lead author of several, um, out in uh, the Journal of Great Lakes Research called Leadership for the Next Generation of Great Lakes Stewardship. And uh, I think that's, yeah, I think I got that title right. Uh, anyway, Mike, how are you today? I'm doing great. I'm doing great. I'm proud to call myself a researcher just so I could hear that song. There we go, right? <laughs> Me too. <laughs> yeah, all-time classic. Uh, I mean, in a very limited definition of classic. All right. So you got a lot of titles, man. What is it? What do you do as as all of that stuff? What is your job like? 
Yeah, my job is really research translation and working with uh, students to uh, on Great Lakes issues. So I have a whole teams of uh, master students here at University of Michigan School for Environment and Great Lakes, or School for uh, Environment and Sustainability, yeah. who are doing these uh, series of Great Lakes master's projects. I'm helping them, teaching them professional skills. And then I'm working with the institutes, like you mentioned, Sigler and Michigan Sea Grant, and essentially work on getting those findings and the amazing research that's going out there into the hands of decision makers, stakeholders, uh, media like you all, um, et cetera. So a lot of research translation work all in service of the Great Lakes. I think that's fantastic. There's a lot of I guess, research that's out there where there, there are people that have, they've got certain degrees and can understand it, but the rest of us, the rest of us that it can really impact need to be able to understand it so that we can also have a positive impact and make change too. So thank you for all that you do. There we go. Yeah, well, you know, I, I came here from, I was at the National Wildlife Federation running the Great Lakes region for the last uh, eight or nine years before I came into this position uh, just about a year ago. And, you know, I did see a lot of where there was academic research that was done and just kind of tossed over the fence. And those of us on the practitioner side weren't really sure what to do with it. <laughs> uh, it wasn't really in a usable form. So I'm really committed to making sure that the incredible work going on on the academic side um, can have the maximum impact. That's yeah. Awesome. Our former um, director, uh, Brian Miller was his name. He's the director of Illinois Indiana Sea Ground for a long time. And he's been a Great Lakes mucky muck uh, for, for a while. I remember at one point he talked to me, he's like, Stuart, you know, what we need to make sure is that research is used. And I came from like a more academic background at first. And, and just that idea of it being used, I thought was interesting. And you just use that term usable, which it has to be in order for it to get used. Do you think that's intention though? I mean, or is that, so you're doing this translational research. Is it hard to get scientists to change their mindset from chucking it over the fence to actually producing something that is usable? It depends. I mean, just, just like everybody else, some of the scientists are, are sort of uh, ready for that opportunity or saying, please help, help me. I want this. Uh, I want my work to be publicly resonant. I want, you know, I want it to have the maximum impact and others not, and I, I pass no judgment on this. Others say, Hey, let me do my lab stuff. You do the work on the other end. I'm not interested in that. And you need people who are doing the basic science as well. Um, but I do think there's been this kind of shift towards more applied work into more impactful work. It's being recognized more sort of in the funding streams. It's being recognized more in universities. It's being recognized more in how folks get tenure and the reward system within universities. So I feel like, you know, it's shifting that way. And part of my role is to help develop the skill sets so that uh, researchers uh, can, can have that maximum impact. I love that. Not everybody can be an expert in everything. So let, let people be those different experts. Yeah. Fair enough. But are there skills? So you say you help develop the skills. What uh, we're so far from the list already. I apologize, Mike. I mean, I don't actually. Apologize. So what? Uh, how, what kind of skills can you help? Because Megan's right. Not everybody's going to do this right um, uh, successfully. Um, but but maybe there are some steps that scientists can take. Like if you have, uh, uh, like, what are some skills that you think people can bone up on if they want to become a better translator of research? Well, you know, it's some of the basic communication, right? Okay. Like, how do we get it down to the core core message? Mm -hmm. And I think of this more with sort of the grad students that I work with. One of the things that I do is I have uh, one of our local media uh, personalities, Lester Graham, who's with Michigan Radio. He comes into the course. He asks each of these grad students about their master's project 
and has them get give it to them in a 30-second pitch. Oh, cool. Can they get this complex research down to something that he then would be able to pitch to his ed- editors? And by the way, it's le- led to some actual stories. That's fantastic. More, more important is the skill set. Can you do that? And so, you know, doing that with folks who, who have much more experience and actually are much deeper in the work, sometimes it's harder for those folks than, than it is for students because they have so much knowledge. Getting it down to kind of those bite sizes that are needed to be publicly resonant can be really tricky. Yeah. Oh, look at that. I'm in Lester Graham's website now. Well, that's cool, man. This guy is, yeah. Uh, you'd be lucky to be interviewed by Lester Graham. <laughs> All right. Well, let's let's try to pull ourselves back in again. This is all my fault, as as usual. So we're here because of this paper you wrote about the next generation of of Great Lakes stewardship, and you wrote it with a, a bunch of co-authors. So I think it, it's worth remembering that. Um, but uh, so, what inspired you and the team to do this? Like, why why did you want to do this, and why now? Well, I think we're at kind of this uh, this pivot po- point moment in in our collective Great Lakes work. And by that, I mean, in, in one of the things that myself and the co-authors who are, who are different uh, faculty members from across the University of Michigan, all in different fields and things, but with a common interest in the Great, Great Lakes. But, you know, one of the things that, that we've realized is we're at this pivot point in Great Lakes restoration initiatives. And by that, I, I mean that we have um, largely funded now the areas of concern, these are the toxic hotspots that have been the plurality of federal cleanup dollars. It's where, where the single biggest chunk of money is gone. With the additional billion dollars that came through the infrastructure funds, um, we now have a plan at least and a budget to clean up all of the hotspots that are eligible. And what it does is it, it actually allows us to think more broadly about restoration. It's kind of both this financial pivot point, but more importantly, I think it's actually a pivot point in our thinking that we can be thinking more forward about restoration, moving away from remediating past harms. Don't get me wrong, there's still re- remediation left to do in the region, but some of the major work is done and start thinking forward. So we decided to put a thought piece together about what looking forward would look like. Yeah. Uh, so, so why, why now? Why now? Why is this such a good opportunity? Is it because if we don't act now, we're totally hosed or is it, um, is there something else in the air in your mind? Well, that, that's part of it. Sure. I mean, it, it, you know, one, one way to think about it is, you know, the Great Lakes are this great uniter of the region, right? The Great Lakes are great uniters. They bring people together. They're a core value of the region. Survey after survey shows this, but then we have these massive disruptions. So climate change and environmental injustice are the great disruptors of the system, mm-hmm. right? And so the, everything that we know about the lakes from the ecology of it to the, to the community side is actually changing because of climate vulnerabilities and because of the way communities are interacting with, with the water. So when we say that there's this opportunity, it means that we've got this disruptive force and we need to capitalize on that disruption. And we need to actually start moving our institutions forward. Our institutions that manage the Great Lakes were largely developed, well, some of them 100 years ago now. And they're siloed. We think about water separately than air. You know, we think about endangered species in one bucket. Mm-hmm. And we think about uh, habitat restoration in another. It, and that's not going to work when you've got these massive disruptions coming, coming through. We have to think in a much more holistic manner. And we also, I think, have a political opportunity, not just the funding, but we have an EPA that is prioritizing restoration, is prioritizing justice and climate issues. And so we have this moment where our federal leadership is teed up to think about things differently, an opportunity that I haven't seen 
in my career in the Great Lakes. I've thought about that a lot, even over this restful break that I've had. Like we're we're trying to, just like you said, we're trying to tackle these challenges like they aren't interacting with each other. They are. They're connected. We should treat them like they're connected, and it's it's hard. Well, that is a good point. But then on the flip side of that is like it, it, when you're talking about scientists, they become disciplinary experts, right? Yeah. And, and you have to because if you don't, yes. otherwise you don't have that disciplinary expertise. And so it can be hard to bridge that gap, I think. Yeah. Yeah, ab- absolutely. I mean, and, you know, one of the things and actually some of the feedback we got in this paper is about that very thing. And we are not arguing for getting rid of disciplinary expertise. We absolutely need the experts mm-hmm. in these areas. We're not deep in particular areas. We're not going to come up with a solution, but we need connections here. We need to actually think about managing holistically at the ecosystem scale, right? We need to think about resiliency as a concept that transcends each individual issue, right? In each individual piece. And for us on the academic side, that begins with how we train students. We can't be satisfied with training just in deep disciplinary knowledge if we're not training in the connections between, if we're not training and thinking systematically. And that's an opportunity that we see. It's an obligation, I think, that comes from the academic side of things and the educator side of things. So there's a step, that, and that's a good point, but I I worry we've been talking about this for a long time and there's been a a lot of, I don't want to say lip service, a lot of people who genuinely believe it, but, but action steps are hard to come by, right? I remember my dissertation advisor, she wrote a paper, oh my goodness, it was probably 30 years ago at this point, worrying that we're training idiot savants, um, it, which is conservation <laughs> biologists that she called it, who don't know anything about the social sciences. This was, you know, back in the nineties. The uh, but like, so one thing you're talking about is training students. So there are other things we can do to make it so that it's not just, I mean, everybody agrees with this, right? How do we translate that into something actionable though? And who are the people to do it? Yeah. Well, I think part of, part of it too is how we center communities in restoration. If we take this focus on Great Lakes restoration, one of the things that's concrete right now is the Justice 40 initiative. And that's saying that 40% of the benefits of all federal programs, but if we're talking here about Great Lakes uh, restoration programs specifically, must go to underserved communities. So if you start operationalizing that, it actually gives you a roadmap for how there's community input, community engagement, and how there's a focus on particular communities when we're talking about how we think about restoration and the billions that will go into it in the future. That's being operationalized right now through a series of environmental justice screens. And the EPA has hired many folks um, to help with their environmental justice outreach and other pieces, pieces like that. So that's kind of one of the ways that it's translating and operationalizing and kind of changing our focal point. And by the way, that's not issue specific. That's actually specific to particular communities across the range of issues. By no means do, do I want to portray that that's going perfectly so yeah, far. Sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not. EPA is, is poorly trained in this. If you think about who we've hired for, for in our federal government, and I mean, no offense to the employees here, but it tends to be technical experts, not community engagement experts. Mm-hmm. So it takes a whole different level of expertise. More folks like, like you all and Sea Grants and things are actually really good at that engagement, but that's not generally who we have doling out the federal funds. Yeah. So it takes those kinds of systems changes that we're just seeing getting underway right now. You know, what you're saying ties into something I think about a lot, though. And, and so I don't know if I've harped on it lately, but something I used to harp on all the time is like real versus fake priorities. And if something is a real priority, it needs it within an organization. It needs three things, only three things, I'm going to say. <laughs> <What's that? laughs> it needs exactly three and no fewer than three things. And, the, and one is... um. Uh, leadership attention, right? 
Um, two is it needs budget and three, it needs agenda time. And if it doesn't have those three things, then it, it isn't a real priority. It's, it's a lip mm-hmm. service priority, I think. And, and so thinking about the justice 40 and some of the hires, we might be moving in that direction. And so that's encouraging to hear. Yeah. The, the old adage of, you know, show me, show me your budget and I'll tell you your yeah. priorities. Right. I mean, that's, that's true. And we're just starting to see that play out. You know, it, it's, the, the Biden administration, I think, started with some strong commitments on this, but it's taken years for it to trickle out. Uh, and we're just starting to see some of the impacts. now. Yeah, I was reviewing stuff. And, and we, of course, are non-political as a non-advocacy based organization at Sea Grant. But uh, it's just a fact that I was looking at uh, NOAA's research budgets over the last uh, 10 years for paper I was writing. And um, uh, yeah, there's just a lot more now than there was um, under the prior administration. It's just because priorities are, are different, I suppose. Yeah, I agree. You know, and the other thing, this is on a little bit different plane, but the other thing that's been happening in the Great Lakes world that I think helps helps sort of transform things is there's a lot more focus on water security and water access, huh. or water insecurity and water access. Meaning, you know, we're in the middle of the world's uh, most important and largest freshwater asset, yet we have people who can't access it due to economic conditions. Uh, in, in, you know, and that's all over the region. It's and sometimes wild. that's in very rural areas, sometimes in urban areas. But that issue has been thought of separately before the Flint water crisis. If yeah. you go back back to there, before the Toledo water crisis, or Benton Harbor water crisis, or I can go on and on, right? Um, but now that's being seen as a central issue um, in Great Lakes restoration by the NGOs, by government entities, by, by academia, et cetera. And that's another whole different way of thinking about it. When the, the original Great Lakes Restoration Plan was written oh, over 20 years ago now, nobody was talking about water access and affordability. And now it's fairly central. Yeah. We no one was talking about climate resilience at that time either. One thing that I thought was interesting is, is you framed your paper as a 21st century stu- uh, stewardship. How do we address these problems? What is, a, what, what is a 21st century way to address the problem both of stewardship, I guess, but also of, of training leaders? Well, it's the cross-disciplinary training for sure. Um, it's actually it goes back to what um, it sounds like your advisor wrote about 30 years ago. If we're training biologists who have no capacity to work within communities, we failed, right? So we actually have to have folks that have those skills. And on the flip side, if we're training folks on the community side who don't have basic scientific and ecological literacy, we failed, right? So, so it's those types of boundaries. The other point that we make in this paper, which might be a little bit um, uh, maybe counter counterintuitive, but we need to keep more expertise at the local level. So there's been kind of this trend where you know superstars at the local level, and I'm, I'm not don't care if we're talking about government or the nonprofit world or education world, tend to rise up and maybe go to go to um, a bigger city or, or go to where there's more concentration of wealth and knowledge. We actually need local experts across the entire region, and we need to recognize and reward that, and have that be a place where people stay for their for their careers. Yeah. That's going to create this network, mm-hmm. uh, strengthen that network. And so, a little counterintuitive in a way, saying that we need more people to actually stay put in their local community. Um, but that's the kind of networks we need. Well, here's what's funny is uh, so. Uh, so I've just finished this paper and submitted it this morning. It's why it's on my mind. But we're analyzing publication um, trends uh, within Sea Grant funded research, comparing it. Uh, we're analyzing Sea Grant funded research, but we are comparing it to uh, uh, 
we had a little section where we compared it to NOAA funded research generally. And so Sea Grant's research funding model is they, you know, every Sea Grant program gets money from the national office. And they're supposed to take, uh, on average, they're supposed to take 30 to 50% of that money and to, um, uh, use it to fund research. And and the local Sea Grant programs are supposed to identify priorities. There's a different ways they can do that. But, you know, it's locally relevant research. And um, what we found was that uh, the cost, uh, so for every, uh, I don't know the exact numbers, but it's very roughly for every $50,000 of Sea Grant funding, you would get a publication, um, a scientific publication. And so that's for that really locally targeted funding, working on local issues, but having, you know, a, an effect on the scientific or ha- making a contribution to the scientific discussion. For the broader NOAA funding, um, it was about $150,000 per publication. So Sea Grant was actually yeah. way more effective. So I think I think these are not necessarily intention. I think you can make broad contributions to science while working on local issues. It's just, it's a mindset shift like you're talking about. Absolutely. And, you know, it it makes sense to me in a way because, you know, one of the things we argue for in our paper is that we need to train, you know, the term of art is boundary span. Yeah. Well, Sea Grant, due to the very nature of how it's set up, people in Sea Grant are boundary spanners. So you're going to wind up with a lot of productivity because you're, you're kind of touching a lot of nodes all all at once and bring people together, the, the extension function, the research function, the education yep. function, all oh, of those cool. pieces. Mm-hmm. Together. Yeah. All right. We're getting too rah-rah Sea Grant. So let's move on. Um, the, <laughs> but no, Sea Grant's awesome. I mean, I've dedicated my whole career to Sea Grant, but, uh, but we don't, uh, we all know how awesome it was. But Megan, so you work on this too, like training stuff. So, so you're our aquatic education associate, right? The three yes. word title. We know all three <laughs> of those words. And, and but a lot of what you do is working with I mean, so so Mike's talking about uh, student graduate students, right? Generally, mm-hmm. maybe some undergraduates, too. You work with much younger students than that. Like what what are you seeing in terms of trying to train stewards? Like uh, what 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 works for you or, or do you have any sort of thoughts on this based on your experience there? So I will say that I'm still trying to work on what is actually going to be the most impactful for them. But what I have found so far is that like, once you get them connected to a space that's connected to them, then they're going to be more likely to champion for that body of water, that ecosystem. For example, um, we could bring students from Northwest Indiana down here to the middle of nowhere, Indiana, um, and teach them about a body of water here. But that's like, it's going to be fun and they're going to, enjoy nature but if you take them to lake michigan and show them that this body of water is 20 minutes from where they live and they can have like the the practices that they do and use and the litter that they may throw out the window or they've seen someone throw out the window has an impact on that body of water then they're going to be more likely to want to champion for change in that space and so, so the idea of boundary spanners, maybe that arrives later, right? Although if you're training, so mm-hmm. another thing that Megan um, does that uh, uh, she is, does something called Familiar Faces Project, right? In which she um, tries to expand sort of people's definition of, of what uh, an environmentalist or scientist mm-hmm. or an outdoors person can look like. And so maybe one way you get boundary spanners is by having a more diverse group of people involved mm-hmm. in, in right? So it's a bunch of guys that look like I do, uh, and I notice I said guys, right? That's that's, that's good. It's true. That's, um, yeah. But but it needs to be more expansive, right? Yeah. Okay. Everybody should be represented. Everybody's impacted by the things that we do, right? And everybody should be yeah. represented in making that change. Yeah, such a work developing stewardship ethic and sense of place, right? I mean, that's mm-hmm. kind of the pyramid upon which everything else flows from. Yeah, makes makes a lot of sense. So are you uh, thinking about this? I think this is 
potentially an optimistic article. Well, there, there could be pessimism too, right? If we don't do this, <laughs> if we blow the generational opportunity, we might not get another one, right? Or might not get another one in this way. Are you, would you call yourself an a, a optimist or a pessimist or a, a pragmatist um, uh, uh, about the Great Lakes? Well, you know, those who know me well will, 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 uh, will certainly say I'm a serial optimist, <laughs> with a dose of pragmatism. Okay. In, uh, I'm definitely a, a kind of glass half full guy overall. Uh, but, you know, in, in this article, we do lay out some really, you know, frightening trends on environmental injustice, on the climate vulnerabilities, on these emerging contaminants like PFAS that we're seeing, invasive species, which can kind of you know, have wreaked havoc on, on the Great Lakes ecosystem and could do continue to do so. Yeah. Um, but, you know, if we don't approach these with a sense of optimism, uh, we're not going to stay motivated for our work. And, yeah. and we truly believe this. I mean, remember, you know, these systems have survived, have survived for, for much longer timescales than, than humans. And so in many ways, when we think about it, it's like, all right, how are we going to get to a state of resilience? How are we going to sort of weather the storm of, of uh, climate change and injustice and get to a state that's going to be, that's going to work both for the human and natural communities. And I think outlining that vision and then backcasting, you know, to, to right now, like I spend time with students doing that because you got to build from a positive vision. That's what fuels all of our internal fires. And, you know, I hope it's not just wild eyed optimism. It's actually, you know, rooted in sort of the practical steps to get there. But I'm a big, I'm a big fan of sort of starting with, with the bold, beautiful vision and then working backwards from there. I love it. You can't, you can't go at it with doom and gloom. You've got to talk about the, the happy things too. <laughs> yeah. And I just say from, you know, working in the advocacy sphere for the National Wildlife Federation, I've worked for a couple of other organizations, you know, doom and gloom doesn't, there's the practical element of this too. Doom and gloom doesn't work. Mm-hmm. The social science research and the social psychology of this is is really clear. People turn that off really quickly, yep. right? Well, you can't, you actually can't function that way and hope to move the public to whatever it is, whether it's a local restoration or it's a policy that you're trying to build support for. Uh, the positive vision is is actually what people will will um, you know align behind. Uh, hitting them with gloom and doom turns them away. Yeah. Okay, so why don't we why don't we close with that then? Let's look. Um, so if we're beginning with the end in mind and we're back casting to what it is. So, uh, what is the, here we are, it is, um, uh, the end of this generation. We're at the generational opportunity. So we'll, let's jump forward to when this generation is winding down. We don't have to put a specific date on it cause that's just kind of creepy. Um, <laughs> but we're looking back and, and thinking, wow, this, we've really nailed this generational opportunity. We've made a huge difference and we had a positive vision and we have enacted it. What sort of uh, things have we done that makes us feel that way? Or what sort of results have we seen that makes us feel so positively in our dotage as we look back at the good work that we did? That's a great question. I mean, I think one sign is you see it in, in sort of the physical arrangements of communities, right? Communities turned their backs to the water, moved away from the water as it got more polluted over time. And we're seeing a, a slow return to that. And then, you know, if we, if we cast forward and we say, communities and individuals are actually, you know, now reopen to the water. And of course that water, think back to the clean, clean water act, it's fishable, it's drinkable, it's swimmable. Mm-hmm. You know, people are utilizing it in all of those different, different ways. Um, because we've taken care of the contaminants, we've, we've restored habitat, 
we've done all those things where communities are interacting with their water in in well, I, I was going to say new ways, but in ways that were that were common before the industrialization actually uh, uh, poisoned and polluted that water. So it's really returned into a state, hopefully, where we've got resilient waterways, where we've gotten a handle on some of the issues of the extremes that are happening now. Now with climate, we've gotten a handle on some of the flooding and the water level rises, and that's due to climate mitigation and uh, adaptation efforts. But I'd love to hear what, what, how that jives with what you, you two think as well. I think it makes a lot of sense. Um, the, the idea of communities turning away. So a lot of my research currently is into areas of concern and revitalization within those areas. And, you know, what does revitalization look like and for whom? does revitalization mm-hmm. occur, right? And so I think hearing those communities turn or turn their backs away from the water, like face the water again. Um, I think that makes a lot of sense. And and you do hear the eatable, the eatable, the swimmable, drinkable, fishable. Hopefully you're not eating the water, maybe like superior. <laughs> um, and uh, I, I think that that makes a lot of sense to me and doing it in a way that is more just and, and equitable, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I think that makes a lot of sense. I love it. I feel the same. I feel the same. Well, Mike, this is interesting. And, and actually, I do think I, I like your positive vision because it is easy to get doom and gloomy, but we don't like to be doom mm-hmm. and gloomy here on Teach Me About the Great Lakes, especially late in the afternoon. It's a brand new year, as we've mentioned, because we're recording this <laughs> in the new year. And um, and so uh, it's it's the time for optimism. And that's great. But that's not why we invited you on Teach Me About the Great Lakes this week. The reason that we invited you on Teach Me About the Great Lakes is to ask you two questions. And the first one is this. If you could choose to have a great donut for breakfast or a great sandwich for lunch, which one would you choose? Boy, I was sitting here wondering why I was invited. Now I know. <laughs> I, I, I'm, not a, I'm not a donut person, so that's an easy one for me. A great sandwich. Although as a vegetarian, it's got to be something like a tempeh Reuben or something mm. stereotypical for us environmentalists. But uh, uh, yeah, I'd definitely go sandwich. I like a good tempeh Reuben. So I assume since you work with Sigler in the university that you're in Ann Arbor. And so I'm going to go to Ann Arbor and uh, I'm not going to Zingerman's where, all right, we've been to Zingerman's. I don't have time to go to Zingerman's. I need to enter line now to eat lunch next week. Where other than Zingerman's should I go to get just an amazing sandwich, whether it's a tempeh Reuben or something else? Oh, there, there's uh, Amir's, which is a sandwich shop almost within sight of my office. It's been here probably as long as Zingerman's and it's sort of your classic place. It's got everything from like, you know, a falafel to a roast beef sandwich. Mm. And that's that's my go-to. Oh, Zingerman's is a special occasions thing. A few times a year, it's also a very expensive sandwich. There, yeah, so. yeah, yeah, yeah. Or you can get like a forty-dollar black coffee. Um, exactly. Yeah. All right, Amir's. This is probably the wrong Amir's. <laughs> Turns out there are multiple Amir's. Good <laughs> um, road trip coming out. This one's in Peoria. I was like, you know, they're showing a lot of fried chicken for a, a Tempe Reuben place. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, all right, hold on, hold on. Let me find the right Amir's. Uh, A M E R S. That's correct. All right, let's check. Oh, yep, yeah, that is not that is not a fried chicken right there. Is that like a? That's a Chicago style hot dog. Yes, they do. That's right. They do hot dogs there as well. Mm. And they do, you know, they, it's one of those places that's got a board of I don't know how many. It's probably eighty, a hundred different kinds of sandwiches that oh. you order at the counter and then they come out to you. Wow. Yeah. Do they have good like veggie hot dogs there? I too am a vegetarian. Some days I eat fish, but 
I'm, so I'm, I'm same with you. I fish some days. Uh, and I, you know what? Honestly, I haven't actually uh, partaken in the hot dogs there. I'm mm. guessing there's a veggie one. Okay. But I haven't They're going to jam a carrot in one of these, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> very cool. All right. Well, now I know what I'm doing. Got to go to Mayor's yeah. in, in Ann Arbor. We'll put a link to that in our show notes, which you can find at teachmeaboutthegreatlakes.com slash 91. The number is 91 because this is episode 91, Mike, um, which is we're getting long in the tooth, but uh, that's okay. Uh, Megan, take it away. Yeah, while we're up that way, and maybe even not up that way, um, but is there a special place in the Great Lakes that you'd like to share with our audience that we may be able to visit? Um, and what makes it special? Ooh, a special place in the Great Lakes. Well, if it's not cheating, I'll give you I'll give you two. Yeah. Um, one, people probably won't be surprised about this one, but I, I got to say Iowa Royal National Park. And I had the opportunity last I've been there a few times. I had the opportunity last summer to go backpack the island end to end. And I just think it was the most incredible wilderness and yeah. uh, wildlife experience that I've, that I've had in the Great, Great Lakes. And it's, it's, it's an incredibly special, special place. Um, but two, and I'll give this kind of the, uh, it, it's the unsung um, hero award. And there's probably many, many places like this in the Great Lakes, but just about two hours uh, northeast of here, it's called town called Tallis, Michigan, which sits right at the top of Saginaw Bay. So, you know, if you if you were looking at me, you'd see me doing my the annoying Michigan <laughs> pointing kind of the tip of my index finger there. Michigan, America's high five. That's what. All right. So anyway, so you're pointing at the tip. Oh, yeah. So Tallis, Michigan is basically where Saginaw Bay opens up into um, Lake Huron. And it's one of those towns that's a little bit forgotten in terms of, you know, it's it's. It, it is not a glitzy resort town like your Traverse City or places in Door County and, and all those kinds of things. Um, but it's got this beautiful shoreline, part of it rocky, part of it sandy. It's got kind of like these little cat. People tend to stay in these little cabins along the water. And it's just got this feel of a um, up north type of place and a Great Lakes place with a lot of history. It's kind of where like the auto workers had if they were lucky enough and in the times when things were really good in the in the auto industry lots of uaw workers had yeah. their second homes in these areas really? these little, so it's it's a very cool area i have a friend who who um have a own one of these little groups of cabins there and i'm taking the spending a week or two there each yeah. summer that's a special nice. place. oh that's amazing. that's amazing oh yeah so it's right at like the second knuckle on the index finger of michigan exactly looking at that now fantastic well, great. Uh, Mike Schreiberg, Professor of Practice and Engagement at the School for Environment and Sustainability at the University of Michigan, the Director of Engagement for the Cooperative Institute for Great Lakes Research and the Michigan Sea Grant College Program, home of dear friend of the show, Geneva Langland, among many others. Thank you so much for coming on and teaching us all about the Great Lakes. Thank you very much. Pleasure to talk with you both and uh, Happy New Year. I love a nice optimistic vision. Megan. Yeah, it gives yeah. me hope. Like there, there's so many things that are going wrong in the world right now, you know, but... <laughs> but there are people that really care, right? They yep. want to make a difference. And he's yep. training the future to also really want to make a difference. Yep. In a no, way that true. they can make a difference. So. It's true. You just hope that uh, 
uh, when you're when one is feeling optimistic, you hope that the uh, the training outruns the yes the things they're being trained for. I don't know. I don't. I don't have a pithy statement, but yeah, no, it's great. It's great, and and I mean they're dead on. The the you know it's kind of like the last episode you and I did where with the uh, the triennial assessment report and the science plan and all that. It's good. Secret is getting it implemented right and getting mm-hmm. it implemented timely. And so, but uh, it's it is really buoying to to hear that stuff. Um, yeah. Yeah. Very cool. Sure. All right. Well, do you have a theme for the new year? It's really focused on what our plan is for the year and what we want to get done. And so I think I'm going to take a page out of that book and work on that soon so that I can figure out what the heck my theme is going to be. (laughs) No, that's a good idea. Yeah, I I was trying to think about that too. And and lately I've been working on like a quarterly basis, really trying to think about what each quarter is going to look Mm -hmm. like. And sort of in different... Yeah, different roles in my life too, right? Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, I was thinking about it because I was, I was, annual planning is weird, right? I'm, I'm not saying it's unimportant or it's dumb, but it's kind of dumb because mm-hmm. when you do an annual plan, like what happens is you do the annual plan, you're like, all right, and you put it in the drawer and you never look at it again. Yeah. A quarter quarter seems like a better increment. And so, so I've been working on that. Um, yeah, we'll see. I mean, all you can do is try to move forward in the little uh, mouse wheel or hamster wheel. Yes. Oh, cool. In the grand scheme of things, does it really make a difference? Who knows? But we can only do what we can do. <laughs> right now wait what happened to the optimism (laughs) (laughs) i know i get this is this is me every day he's going back and forth megan l gun l for low optimism (laughs) all right well that's fine uh it could also be l for lake lover i guess it had to be two l's lake lover no it wouldn't have to be it could be one word lake lover lake lover yeah look Look, lover gun. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so French. <laughs> oh, man. Taste Me About the Great is brought to you by the Fine People at Illinois. We encourage you to check out the cool stuff we do at iicgrant.org and at ilincgrant on Facebook, Twitter, and other social media. Our senior producers, Carolyn Foley, Teach Me About the Great Lakes, is produced by Hope Charters, Megan LeCleverGun, and Ree Miles. <laughs> Ethan Chitty is our associate producer, our fixer, and our purchaser of tools. Your super fun podcast artwork, which features a moose head from Isle Royal. Uh, way back to Teach Me About the Great Lakes, episode number two. Uh, anyway, this is my Joel Davenport. The show is still reluctantly edited by me while we find someone else to replace the irreplaceable. If you have a question or comment about the show, please email to teach me about the great lakes at gmail.com or leave a message on our hotline at 765 496 IISG. And for those of you without T9, it is 4474. Yeah, that's can... our team. Our team. Our team. We need, we need this hotline. Is, it's too dormant, people. I know, you know, we have a sizable audience, but you need a very big audience before you yeah. hang on before you can really start to get audience interaction. But this is what I want this year. We need some some people out there call in a hotline. Mm-hmm. I, the problem is that means you have to have people make phone calls. Nobody likes to do anymore. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Maybe we should get a texter. But Ooh. then it's so fun. Text yeah. into our hotline? Text, texter. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> you can also follow our show on Twitter at Teach Great Lakes, but the stewardship of that site is decidedly un 21st century at this point. Thanks for listening and keep grading those lakes. <laughs> 